Hey, you would never sit in the back, would you? <laughs> Good students always sit up front. There are some handouts in the back. If you haven't got that, there's a handout from last week on toward understanding the Bible. I'm going to reference that in this lesson. And I also gave you a schedule for going through numbers so you always know what text is coming up next. And the reason I give you that is so it gives you the opportunity to read ahead. And we're going to be going so quickly through this book that we won't have time to always read everything. So that way you know what our schedule is. And on the back of that is a super cool chart that I'll reference as well. I found really helpful. And so you'll have that. So now you have a, a numbers Bible reading plan over the next few weeks as we study this together. And a cool chart. I like cool charts. And that's why I shared that with you. Because <laughs> I know that you like them too. Today we're continuing in the book of Moses, or in the Torah, and the book of Numbers. If you want to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Numbers chapter 1. And as we situate ourselves to continue in the scriptures here together in numbers, let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and the instruction and the wisdom that is found there and how you reveal yourself and specifically as we've been studying your holiness. Pray that you would give us a grasp of your holiness and it would conform our lives to your holiness, that you would make us holy as we would read your holy word together. I pray that our study would be profitable for the sake of your kingdom as we delight together and fellowship around your truth. Amen. The author of the book of Numbers is Moses. Is, is, this is the book of Moses. That's how we know who wrote it, because Jesus called it the book of Moses. And why did Moses write what he wrote here specifically in Numbers? Well, it was to equip Israel with a worldview centered on God's holiness. So, you know, if you didn't have this little section in your Bible that said Numbers, you would just think you were just going to, you just had kept reading Leviticus. It just sounds the same. Uh, you're at the same place. You're at Sinai. You have the same focus, which is on God's holiness, and you keep reading the phrase, then Yahweh spoke to Moses, and uh, you also hear that, that phrase, you know, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, but this is indeed a unique section within the book of Moses, while it has many connections to the whole, it continues the theme of holiness that we saw through Leviticus, which is going to be the continued focus through Numbers chapter 10 which is the section where they 
are at, still at Sinai. We're still there. But Israel doesn't need to stay there. They need to go from there into the land that was promised to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. But before the holy people can go into a holy land, they have to be refined. They have to be made a holy people. They must be holy before they can live in a holy land so that they won't have to be exiled from it. And the refining process would both be used to teach Israel and the world about God's holiness. Because as all these things are going on in the, the wilderness, the, the other nations are supremely interested in these people. I mean, you think about the, the world's greatest superpower of the time, Egypt had just been totally destroyed and the survivors are these people. So it's like, what is going on and why are these people alive and what are they doing? They're forming an army. <laughs> so the, the nations are supremely interested in these people because they just saw you know, the greatest world superpower destroyed and there's this army that's collecting in the wilderness. And in the wilderness is the Hebrew title of this book taken from those words in the first verse, in the wilderness, which is where the book takes place. And at this point, it's been one year since the tabernacle had been built. So you know, Exodus 40, there you have the month of the tabernacle being built. And then in Leviticus, we go through a year of history. And beginning in Numbers, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month in the second year after they had come out from the land of Egypt. Now, who remembers how long the Israelites spent in the wilderness? Forty years. So now we're in the, the second year of that. So this is going to record, Numbers is going to record all that, the the next 38 years of their history where God refines them in the wilderness. This is where he refines his nation. In a way, the, the wilderness and going through testing trials like this is how God brings about spiritual maturity in a people. And to the original audience, God's holiness in this book was demonstrated both negatively and positively. So you think about that, and this book has two censuses. I think that's the right way to say that. If it's not, I don't have spell check on my dry erase board. So, <laughs> uh, the book breaks out around two censuses. The one, the first generation, and what happens with them is they fail and they're executed. So God shows His holiness in judging them and executing them, but. God shows his holiness also in the second census or the second generation that he refines a people and they end up triumphing. Israel was to go to war, which the nations were spying and watching them and their preparations for that. And their preparation was a warning to the nations. The way that they worshiped and the way that they were preparing was teaching the nations about God's holiness and sending a, a warning shot across the bow that God in his holiness will either execute you or refine you. 
God is holy. If you disobey him, he will judge you. God is holy, and he can make you holy and deliver you, which you would see with the whole tabernacle worship, that there was a way that people could be purified, as we had seen in Leviticus. When you think about this to the generations beyond that would read this book, is in that what it would teach them is that holiness is a linchpin issue for all of humanity. Uh, it's, it's the turning point in your relationship to God and eternity, that you will be either judged eternally or delivered eternally. It teaches that both man and land must both be made holy to God and that God alone is the one who does that because God alone is holy. Therefore, he's the only one who can make holy, which is what he has promised to do. He has promised over and over that he's going to make man holy and to make the land holy and to bring man back into God's land under his command and blessing and rest forever. But for this to take place, there's something that must happen. Before holiness can come to an entire people, an entire land, Israel must go home first. This is, and this is conditioned upon the whole nation's repentance. The whole nation of Israel has to repent and become holy before they can go into the holy land. If you look back at Leviticus 26.40 with me, you'll see that. Leviticus 26.40. This is in the section of God talking about the blessings and the curses. He says, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also how they walked in hostility against me, I also was walking in hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make up for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. This is, this is something that's set up in Scripture that uh, you categorize in your eschatology folder. God says that this whole nation has to repent before they'll come into the land and receive the fulfillment of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, which included land. And in Romans 11, as we had looked at in the past, Paul says, so all Israel will be saved. It's still something that's a future point, even from Romans chapter 11, that all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's like, well, how are they going to repent? God's going to give them repentance. God's going to take away their sins and bring them into the land just as he had promised so long ago. The structure of this book, as we've already started to discuss, what I'm doing here is I'm working through this little handout that I gave you last week that is in the back of the room on the chair if you didn't get one, is working through those hermeneutical questions. And one of was like, well, what? What, uh, what do we find here in the book of Numbers and uh, how is it structured? That's one of the sub-questions there. 
and it's structured around those two censuses as we had uh, discussed and it's focused on God's power of holiness to execute and refine but in a wider structure within the book of Moses we have this we had talked about this in the past that uh, the, the book of Moses has a chiastic structure, meaning the central point is in the center, which is the book of Leviticus. Everything's moving in toward that, and particularly the Day of Atonements. But outside of that, you have Exodus and Numbers parallel one another. Now, can you think of any events that are similar between Exodus and Numbers? Like people grumbling in the wilderness. Say, hey, there's some parallels here. We're going through the same sort of thing, but we're going from one generation to another. So this is where you have this little structured piece of how the Bible works and the, the structure of the Bible. You have where God is establishing his law in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So we expect to have a lot of connections there, but we see it parallels the Bible later in the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of John, that's what this G is here for. Can you think of any parallels between Exodus, Numbers, and maybe the Gospel of John? Like people grumbling in the wilderness about bread and water, or the connections with the Passover and the Lamb of God, things like this. You know, it's important in our study to you know, think about how these things are connected throughout Scripture because it's one book. In a sense, there isn't an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's just the testimony. There's just the sacred writings. And there isn't some white page in between them that makes a hard separation between them. It's helpful to think about how this is one book, from, ultimately from one divine author through his chosen spokesperson or spokespeople spokesmen, even more specifically. And within this book, we see a census. And verse 2, Numbers 1-2, says, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. And when this happens in verse 5, we hear an echo of Exodus when it says, Then these are the names of the men. Which, you remember, that's what the title of the book of Exodus was, these are the names. And then in verse 16, it says, these are they who were called, which this reminds us of Leviticus, which the Hebrew title was, and he called. So we have the people of the name, the called people, which you're probably thinking, well, where's Genesis at? And it's in verse 18 when it says, then they registered by genealogy in their families and we're going to go on later in chapter 3 to read about the generations of Aaron and Moses. Now, why is it that we have a census? And in verse 46, it, it mentions that the numbered men were 603,550. What do you think is the significance of having this many people and a census in the covenant redemptive plan of God. What does it show us? Is it just to make your Bible reading really boring? 
Yes, they're multiplying, and, and they're becoming a, an army as well. It's both of those things, which is related to what covenant in the Bible? Yeah, Abrahamic covenant. This is, the seed is multiplying, but then you also see, well, they've grown. We see that in the census, so when we read this, we should think, God is faithful. Just like when we started reading the book of Exodus, we see these are the names, but the names aren't just Jacob and his 12 sons. There's more of them. God's doing exactly what he said. We get to, to numbers. God is still doing exactly what he said, and he's multiplying these people, which by this time you just think, these people are impossible. There's no way this is going to work. But you see, God's faithful. He's doing it. But you also see there's some things that are not fulfilled. They're not in the land. They need to be transplanted there. So the people are increasing in, in God's kingdom but they're not moved, they haven't moved into the land yet, and they're not uh, totally under God's blessing and being a blessing to all nations as promised in the Abrahamic covenant. They need to be made holy first to partake of that blessing and to be a blessing. And they need to be made holy, which is implied by the fact that they're, they've been so disobedient. And you see that these people need to be justified, but they can't justify themselves before God. The only way that they can be made just is the same way that their forefather Abraham was made just. By, this is Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. You know, they needed to be justified by faith in God's righteousness rather than faith in that we're right. So salvation, we see, must be based on promise and not man's performance. As we come to these first six chapters of Numbers, here in these first six chapters that we're considering, this was Israel's preparation to depart to the promised land. And you remember we had talked about the whole tabernacle worship system as a gospel tract. It was a gospel tract which discipled them and some particular things. So you remember, what was it that Israel learned from the, the tabernacle? They learned that God is holy. And then right outside of that, you had the priest doing their work, which taught what? Yeah, atonement and that man needs a mediator. And then... Outside of the court, we learn something about man. There's a reason that he's out there and not in here. He's out there because he is. Starts with an S. Yeah. So Israel's worship system was a gospel tract that discipled them, and it would evangelize the world, which is going to be the thing we're going to see in Numbers. We learn, God is holy. Man is sinful and needs a God-man mediator in order to be made right with God. This worship system was a teaching tool to Israel, but not only to Israel. It was a teaching tool toward the world who was watching them. There's all these people spying on this little military unit forming in the wilderness here in the book of Numbers after the destruction of Egypt, because they want to know, 
what just happened with the destruction of, of Egypt and how did all of these people come out and are they safe? <laughs> Should we let them continue to be out there? Should we be concerned? What's going on with these people? Well, Israel in their worship, they would declare these things to the nation in how they traveled. They would announce God's holiness and demonstrate it in the way that they carried out their worship. So they would announce it and demonstrate it. Those are two words you want to write in your notes, announce and demonstrate. And as you start reading this book of Numbers, it says, Then Yahweh spoke. And we don't want to overlook those words there and overlook the fact that God speaks and he's speaking and guiding his people and he's not just giving them suggestions but he's giving them his authoritative word and it's coming through his mediator which is Moses and he does this because he loves these people and he cares about them and he's wanting to direct them toward his blessing which is the best possible thing for them this was a reminder that God's word is central in Israel's life. God's word is central in creation, and not only for Israel, but for all nations and for all people for all times. Now, as this military census is being taken, I gave you here in the handout, you have this little chart here on the back. You see that the, the tribes, the different tribes were to divided up around the tabernacle in different places. And the multiplication of these tribes shows God's faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. And what happens between the first and the second census in this book is that uh, you see some interesting things happen with some of the numbers, which I don't have a chart for that that chart is in a book called What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, and there's only one copy on the book spinner. Uh, if you want to arm wrestle over that, you guys can do that afterwards. But it, it shows some differences that happen in some of the numbers between the two censuses, and I'll just mention a few of those. One of them is with Manasseh, where they go from 32,000 to 52,000. So their number goes up for some reason. So what you're going to find out, some good things happen with Manasseh, their numbers go up. Uh, Simeon, their numbers go from around 59,000 down to 22. It's like, well, why did that happen? Well, you're going to find out, Simeon, they did some bad stuff. That's why they go down. But one of the things that's interesting in the census is, is Judah, 74,000 to 76,000. So they stay dominant. You don't see a huge increase or decrease, but you see them being dominant. You see that in your little chart there. They're in the, in, on the east side, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. That's all of Leah's sons here. And in their battle formation, Judah was always out front. They were always moving northeast. And Judah was always the leading tribe as they traveled, which was prophesied of Judah in uh, Genesis 49, which is uh, maybe like the most neglected, awesome Bible prophecy in the Bible. That's just my opinion. 
<laughs> but Genesis 49, 8 is what I'm going to read to you. It says, Judah, as for you, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He crouches. He lies down as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, this particular census didn't only show the faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant, but it also displayed specifically that this was for uh, military purposes. This was for them preparing to go to war. So this wasn't just for Israel, but for the nations to see who was marching out to attack them. It was announcing holy war to the nations. What you remember Rahab, a Canaanite, and Jericho, when some of the Israelite spies showed up, she says, we've heard about you guys. We've been watching you. <laughs> and they demonstrated God's holiness in how they traveled. So this is their a camp arrangement that you see laid out in chapter 2. Well, how was it that they demonstrated God's holiness in their arrangement? Well, think about it. What was in the, um, the middle of their whole tribe? Right? So you have all, you know, this whole army all the way around it. God is central. Yahweh is central. This is our king. He's central in everything that we do in life. And in this way, they were announcing God is holy. He's central. His word is central. His law is central. Uh, everything is about dwelling with him, living in him and for him. So in this way, they're announcing God's holiness, which was demonstrated in how their whole camp was set up. In this way, to the observing nations, their actions spoke louder than words. You know, Israel was a, a walking, moving gospel tract in the wilderness. And who was it, if you look at the chart that I gave you, who was immediately encamped around the tabernacle? Yeah, the Levites. Some of them are priests. There's only priests on the entrance into the tabernacle. Not all of the Levites were priests. Those other three tribes were non-priestly Levite guys. But why are they there? Why are they in this little section? What would that teach the nations? Yeah, you, you, you can't just approach God however you want to. You have to come through a mediator. You have to come through his prescribed means of being made holy. You have to be atoned for to have relationship to this God. So the nations would see this gospel tract through the tabernacle worship that God is holy, that man needs a mediator to dwell with holy God. And they would see outside that camp as sinful man, but they would see that's where we're at. We're outside of that, too. We need a mediator, too. We're in the sinful man category out here. 
which within this, you see, there's a need for Israel to be refined in order to communicate and witness to God's holiness in the world, which in chapters 3 and 6, we, 3 through 6, we see the spiritual preparation of the community. In chapter 3, it begins, Numbers chapter 3, now these are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when Yahweh spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priest whom he ordained to minister as priest. But Nadab and Abihu died before Yahweh when they offered strange fire before Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priest in the lifetime of their father Aaron. So that's what the text says. But what's our next hermeneutical question in the chart I handed out last week? That's what it says. Next question is why? Why put a focus on Nadab and Abihu right here all of a sudden? What do you think? It's a warning. It's a warning. Be holy or die. You guys need to continue to remember this. You need to continue to remember that you need to be made clean because you're unclean. And as you would guess, you know, the next you know, paragraph, verses 5 through 10, it talks about, when you look in verse 7, it says, they shall keep his responsibility, which is defined by God. They have a responsibility to God. They can't carry it out however they want. They have to carry it out according to his word and his word alone. And they also have a responsibility for the whole congregation because remember they're mediators of God's holiness before the tent of meeting to perform the service of the tabernacle. And you see there in verse 10 it says, And so you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. So he's saying without the priest mediating for you as you need, you're an outsider and you will be put to death. This was a warning of God's holiness that was to be communicated by the priest. Now you might hear echoes of Adam in the garden here where they were to, the priests were to keep their responsibility for the tabernacle, which you remember we had talked about how this was a picture of Eden to the Israelites. Well, Adam was supposed to keep his responsibility in the garden of keeping God's word and protecting his wife or his bride and her holiness depended on his obedience. You see that similar sort of concept with the priest. The, the holiness of God's bride depends on the obedience of the priest, ultimately. You know, what the priests are like is what the people become like, ultimately. We see that in Hosea, and which has that phrase in there, you know, like, like people, like priest, which we get, a, you know, a, the 
phrase like father, like son, but you can think about how this theology connects in to Christ who is our great high priest and his obedience then affects God's bride, that is the church and her holiness ultimately. These things are being built out from Adam to the Aaronic priesthood to Christ. And in verses 11 to, to 13 there, says, then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of, instead of every firstborn. So you think about that, that's substitution language. Instead of taking of the sons of Israel, well, God is saying, I've provided a substitute in the Levites. You know, this tribe represents substitution says, Israel, instead of every firstborn, the firstborn offspring of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am Yahweh. Here you hear this emphatic statement where Yahweh is saying, well, the reason that there has to be this covenant redemption is because I am the covenant redeemer. And his redemption is tied to the firstborn and there being a substitute. Now, the tribe of Levi, as you saw in the chart, was made up of one priestly tribe and three others, which made up the tabernacle setup and teardown team. That's what these guys did. And the Levites as a whole, they function as a buffer between holy God and sinful man. As we read this, I put, I have a typo in my notes. All right. Chapter 4, verse 19. It's like, why did they have to set up and tear down like this? 419. It says, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. So they had to carry this out in a particular way because to worship God in a different way than he has prescribed results in death ultimately, which presupposes that, well, Israel is unclean. They deserve to die. They need to be made holy. And the spies would be observing this and reporting on it you know, back in their nations. So with these Levites, again, not all of them were priests. You have Kohath there on the chart, which they, they took care of all the tabernacle innards. So they took care of making sure we had all of the camping gear that goes inside of the tent. Then Gershon, they dealt with the tabernacle skin, which was the tent itself, and Merari, they carried the tabernacle bones, which was all of the tent poles, now, out of all of those tribes, you have the guys carrying the camping gear, the guys carrying the tent, and the guys carrying the, the tent poles. Which group in the tabernacle setup teardown team do you think had the highest privilege? What would be the most important thing that you would get to hold and carry? Yeah, the ark. Which is what's interesting about this thing is that they never saw it. They always had to, to cover it and never touch it. You remember Uzzah? Yeah, don't touch.
touch it <laughs> or die. So when you read about, you know, since you've read, you know, more of the Bible, when you read 419, you know, they're, they're to carry this ark in a particular way that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. They got to cover it up. Don't look at it. Don't touch it or you're dead because God is holy. So this is a dangerous job. But you can also see how within the tabernacle set up teardown team, there could be some jealousy because these guys are like, well, we're just priest helpers and not priests, and why do we got to carry this thing? Right, they had the highest privilege, but they didn't necessarily see it that way. And you could think about the nation spying on them, and what they would see is that in them being so organized as one, they care about what they're doing, and they're super organized. This could be bad for us. And they were also learning something about the God of Israel. This is a God of order, not a God of chaos, which is, you might remember, this is the idea of clean and unclean, which we had talked about in Leviticus, that clean and unclean doesn't have to deal with sinfulness necessarily, but clean is those things that are ordered in God's creation the way that they should be. Uh, clean is what it's like to live back in the garden, and unclean is what it's like to live outside of the garden in the chaos of being outside of how God's word orders things. This was true for Israel, that they were to have a life that displayed orderliness because their God is a God of order. And that's true also for our lives. If, if God is truly at the center of our lives, our lives will be orderly. And there's a testimony of who our God is and what he is like when our lives are well-ordered, when we're organized and we know how we're carrying out the battle that God has called us to in this life. Well, these people, as you know, the, they needed to be refined and purified, which is what chapter 5 addresses. It addresses their purity. In those first 10 verses, you read about unclean people being sent out. This is then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, command the sons of Israel that they send away from the camp every leper and everyone having a discharge and everyone who is unclean because of a dead person. Now, you can think about that after this. The, the spies would see this and they'd see that there's people that something happens to them and they have to go outside of the camp. And sometimes they're out there for like a week or so. It's like, this is weird. What is going on with these people? But then they would see, well, there was a time when they could come back and they could make sacrifices and be brought back into the camp. So they would see something like, well, there's things that can separate you from this God, but he's also made a way where you can come back to him somehow. And it's through a sacrifice. It's through some sort of atonement or payment that's made in your place on your behalf that you can come back to him. The spies would see that God's holiness wasn't something that was just theoretical. Uh, it was something that was physically seen in the life of the camp when unclean people would come out and then they would be made clean through a substitutionary sacrifice. They would see that this God is holy and he cares about the holiness of, that's in the lives of his people. He's not going to let them be unholy 
He will refine them because he loves them and he cares about them. This isn't just some empty idea to hear about. Uh, This was something to, to speak about and to live in. Now, as you keep going through Numbers chapter 5, you come to the statutes of jealousy. might be the subtitle in your Bible there. And it goes, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and is unfaithful to him, and a man lies sexually with her and is hidden from, his eye, from the eyes of her husband, and she is undetected, but she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her and she has not been caught in the act. If a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife and she has defiled herself or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, but she has not defiled herself, then the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring as an offering for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley mill. He shall not pour oil on it nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, a reminder of iniquity. And then you go on to read about this thing with the the priest and earthen well vessel and some dust and drinking this thing and figuring out what happens on the other end with the woman to see if she was pure or impure, which when you read it, it's like, this is really weird. I've never heard of anything like this, and I didn't know this was in the Bible, and I don't know what to do about it. (laughs) Well, what's going on here in the statutes of jealousy, you can hear the focus and the repetition of the word jealousy, jealousy, jealousy. And you remember that all of the tabernacle worship was to instruct Israel in truths about God. So what would this teach Israel about God and how they would be treating purity within their marriages? Yeah, yeah. God has a jealous love and he's committed to being faithful in, in covenant to his, to his bride, uh, even if she has been unfaithful, he's made covenant with a jealous love to pursue her being faithful to him. So you see that jealous love pursues, even in a potentially unfaithful love, in a very dramatic way. This was a picture of God's faithful love and the faithful commitment that he deserves to have back to him. So you think again about how this would teach them marriage is important. Uh, It's the bedrock of any society. All society starts with a marriage, starts with Adam and Eve, and then from that, the populace grows. But if you disturb marriage in a society, you'll break the bedrock of it, and it'll start falling apart. Now, these sort of practices that we read of uh, the earthen well vessel and the water and the dust and the lady drinking it and stuff. Uh, while strange to us was very normal to people in the, the ancient Near East, everybody had some sort of practice like this. 
But what was different within Israel was the lady didn't have to take poison and then see if she survives on the other end. She would take something that would be harmless to her ultimately. And uh, what God was doing was teaching everybody in a way that they could understand. So you have to think about that. You know, Israel already understood some sort of purification rite practice like this. But they're saying, this one is different than how the nations do it. But the nations would be watching and say, hey, we do something like that, but theirs is different. There's a kindness that's shown, and there's an emphasis on marriage and purity to that covenant and the purity of God's covenant and his jealous love for his covenant people. You see, it was all to display that and teach that in the world at this time in a way that people would very clearly understand the importance of God's jealous covenant-keeping love. So this ceremony wasn't some weird magical ceremony, but it was a, a theological Sunday school lesson in a way when it would happen. Which carrying on in the purity of Israel in chapters 3 to 6, you come to chapter 6, and God wants to teach the, something through a particular people who would choose to make themselves Nazarites. We hear about the Nazarite vow here. And what do you, what do you guys know about Nazarites? Besides, like, they look like rock stars because they have long hair and weird diets. Well, that's pretty much it, I guess. <laughs> so the, the purpose of, of a Nazarite, you remember, they had a, a particular sort of dedication to God. You know, they, they were a picture and reminder that God deserves this kind of dedication. And they were very visible by their hair. They were discernible by their diet. And they were used as a tool to the world to teach that God's holiness demands this kind of absolute dedication to him. And there are three major lifelong Nazarites in the Bible. Let's see if we can come up with all of them. Who are the, the lifelong Nazarites in the Bible? All right, Samson. John the Baptist, there's another one in between them. Samuel, we got it, good. Now, Samson, good or bad Nazarite? How did he do with his hair and his diet? Not so good. Bad Nazarite. So that, as you see, uh, that's the negative example. Now, what about Samuel? Good hair, good diet, right? <laughs> and what did he have the, the specific privilege to do as a Nazarite. He anointed and announced God's choice for a king who was David, right? So you see, this is the specific purpose of a Nazarite. It's, it's somebody who's dedicated to announcing who God's king is, which you go from Samuel is a good Nazarite, but John the Baptist, the best Nazarite. That's, that's how Jesus referred to him. That's not just my own opinion. John the Baptist also was a king announcer. He was a king announcer of David's seed, 
which is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the purpose of a Nazarite, to be set apart for the special purpose of announcing the king, which shows the nature of dedication to God. You know, this is for everybody to learn from, that whether you eat or drink or whatever you wear or however you do your hair, what, what you proclaim with how you live, well, the idea is there, you, you proclaim something about how important God is, even in those things. You know, in your, in your food, in your clothing. But you exist to be dedicated to announcing the coming king. And the Nazarites were a special group that would remind people of that's what God wants us to be. He wants us to glorify him in everything that we do to be a people who announce and demonstrate the holiness of our king. So we're announcing it with our lives, with our lips, so that people can see the importance of our holy God and how we live, and so that our deeds match our message. When you come to the end of chapter 6, come to the ironic blessing here, as it's titled, and I'd like to read that to you and its entirety. It says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. This is... Uh, Another uh, chiasm sort of thing here within Scripture with three parts, and the first one being focused on bless and keep, which was teaching the people that holiness leads to blessing. If you're, you have to be made holy in order to enjoy God's blessing, but he has to bless you with that holiness first, and if he blesses you with that holiness, he'll also keep you. The work that he begins in holiness in you, he will finish it. That second part and central part is, well, how is that done? Well, he makes his face to shine on you. Well, what's it like when his face shines on you? Grace. That's what it's like. It's he's gracious to you. So it's teaching that holiness leads to the fullness of relationship between God and man. It's like, well, how, how can sinful man have this relationship with God where his face shines on him by the grace of a mediator, ultimately. And well, so what does that bring you? If he lifts up his face on you, what's the result from that? Brings you to the third part of this blessing, which is peace. And what is peace? It's a state of rest and enjoyment, which this blessing gets picked up throughout the epistles later on the Bible, and they say it much quicker and with fewer words, grace and peace to you, right? They got that phrase from their Bible, from Numbers chapter 6. That's where the, you know, all those guys who wrote epistles, they got all their sermon material from back in here. 
Now, as we had uh, worked through this, we had looked at, you know, what Numbers 1 through 6 says. We considered, you know, why these things were written to the original audience, how they relate to us. And to build out on that a little bit more, what we're going to do here right at the very end is answer that third hermeneutical question on the chart, which is the, the so what. We know what it says. We know why it was said. So what's the implications of Numbers 1 through 6 for our lives What's the applications that it has to us? You know, see it, I broke that out in these four little boxes here, and we're going to work through each one of those one at a time. So you know, think about this text. What is it? We'll look at number one, worship for God's works. What sort of things do we worship God for from what we read in Numbers 1 through 6? Yeah, his holiness. Yeah, because of what covenant? Yeah, that he raised up these people, right? Right. So one of part of what you're seeing, you're worshiping God. God, you were faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. That's why this all happened. We also, one of them mentions that you know, Yahweh spoke. He speaks, but he's not, he's not, he's not speaking from, you know, some distance. <laughs> he's in their midst. So you say, he, he speaks as their present guide. You know, he's God with us, instructing us, making us holy. What about worshiping God for what we learn from that weird thing about the statutes of jealousy. Yeah, his kindness, his, his jealous love towards the people that he's in covenant with. Next, next thing there, number two, box number two, learning theology. What do we learn about theology from, yeah, a lot of these all kind of intertwine with one another. But what, do we, what do we learn theologically from numbers one through six? Yeah, holy God and holiness are central. Yeah. Were you reading the title to my message? <laughs> yeah, the, it's absolutely central. And because God is holy, his people must be what? They must be holy. But why must they be holy? Well, because he's holy, but what's the purpose of them living holy lives in this world? Right? To, to be the walking gospel track to the nations, to, to be a witness, to, to testify to who God is to others. Also within theology, we had learned that God has promised land to the nation of Israel, but for them to inherit it, it's conditioned upon their repentance. You know, I read that when we looked back at Leviticus 26, so we still live in the day of the hope of God certainly fulfilling that. It hasn't happened yet. And God didn't just say it to say, I didn't really mean that and I canceled it. He's like, no, he's still going to do it. Which is why I cited also Romans 11, 11, where from the point, the historical point of Romans 11, Paul says, God's still going to do it. He's still going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. 
And the eschatological stuff in Leviticus 26 is still going to happen. It's good news. That's why you can believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8. You can believe Romans chapter 8 because of Romans chapter 11. How about moral responses? What are some moral responses that we learn from Numbers 1 through 6 here? What about in relation to God's word? Because you see him, he's speaking and instructing. What would be our moral response to his word? Trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. But you remember he gave him the warning of Nadab and Abihu? He's a, you know, obey or die because God is faithful. He'll be faithful to judge you or faithful to refine you. But how you respond to him in this life determines what that relationship is going to be like. But he won't change in his holiness. And this is one we already talked about, but another moral response is to, to live a life of holiness that announces God's holiness to the world and it demonstrates it to them. So we're not just speaking a, about it, but we're, we're living it. What about worldview? What, what sort of worldview things do we learn from Numbers 1 through 6? Worldview in light of redemptive history. Does God only have a plan for Israel? Does he have a plan for the people spying on him too? Yeah, he's got a plan for all of the nations. Because remember, Abraham was a father of a multitude of nations. And blessing was... To, to start from his tribe and to go out to the end of the earth. So that's a worldview implication. We also see, well, God is going to be faithful to his creation purpose. Which one, what is God's creation purpose? Going all the way back to Genesis 1. Yeah, for people to be fruitful and multiply unto his glory. The, the increase and the spread of his glory throughout the entire earth. We also see God will be faithful to his covenant promises, which what is it that God's covenants do? It's a, yeah, they frame and forward history. So you think about that when we're reading our Bible and say, well, why do we have a census here? And, you know, why did God tell us all of these numbers about all these people and stuff to show that he's faithful to the Abrahamic covenant that that's what frames and forwards history. I mean, what did you expect was going to happen except what God promised would happen? So we see that he's faithful. And we also see that God's plan moves forward not based on human performance, but covenant promises. And you see, it, <laughs> you remember, you go back and read through Exodus and you don't think, Oh, the reason that these people are prospering is because they're just so obedient to God. I mean, obviously, and they just have really good ideas. They're super wise. That's why they're multiplying. It's like, no way. You know, they, they were the least of all the nations, and they just sin a whole bunch out in the wilderness. 
which you're gonna, we're going to see that out here in Numbers again. Like right now, the, as you read through the first six chapters, it sounds really good. You hear, you know, Yahweh spoke, and they did just as he commanded, which is exactly what we read just before the molten calf incident, which we're going to have a similar sort of thing happen again in Numbers. But we see... You know, the, the building of God's kingdom is never dependent on human performance, ever. It's dependent on his promises, and he's the one who does it. Uh, he's the one who establishes it. And that brings us to be a people in our worldview that we recognize that and we rest in him and seek to be faithful to him and to know that he's going to be faithful to carry out his plan all the way to the end. We also see throughout the book as a whole that God is so powerful that he can raise up a faithful generation right after an unfaithful generation. That's how powerful his holiness is. You're going to see that in the two censuses. I have to get a better word. That's hard. Since I... They see, you know, it looks like the whole plan would just be over. It's like they failed, they're executed, plan canceled. God shows, I'm so faithful and I'm so holy and so powerful that after a generation like that, I can raise up a faithful generation. We also learn in, in worldview in light of redemptive history that everything must be made holy by holy God. Everything must be made holy by holy God and will be made holy by holy God. So it's not just that it must be made that way, but it will be made that way. He will accomplish that exactly as he said in his timing, in his way, which is the wisest and the best way. So I hope that I helped you to learn how to use this thing that I handed out to you so that it would bear much fruit in your own Bible reading so that what you can do next week when we do Numbers seven through nine together. Maybe you will have read through, thought through some of this and uh, it'll be a benefit to our fellowship together as we study numbers together and discuss the things that the Lord is shaping in our lives through his word. So I'll close us in prayer and you're dismissed. Our gracious God, you and you alone are holy and you have given us your holy word to reveal to us who you are and what you're like and that you're to be central in our lives. We pray that we would be the holy people that you call us to be so that your name would be enjoyed in our lives and so that your name would be honored by our lives as others would see it so that we would be a sanctifying influence to other believers as we fellowship here today. We pray that the work of Christ would be seen in us as we would converse and fellowship together. And we pray that your holiness would be seen through us as we seek to be a faithful witness to you in this world to proclaim to other men that you, Christ, are both resurrected judge and Savior, and what people do with you in this life determines their eternal destination. Pray that we would be faithful witnesses to your name, having 
a life that matches the message that you have given us the high privilege to proclaim. And we thank you that you have given us your instructive word and the power of your spirit within us to be able to do these things for the glory of your name. May you be praised and enjoyed in our fellowship. Amen.